today is uh, September 11th, 1992, and I'm talking with uh, John Katz, who uh, in his office in Washington, D.C., and uh, his present office in Washington, D.C., as he has been for a number of years now, is uh, counsel to the governor of Alaska, but in uh, 19... Uh, 69, 70, 71, he was the staff for both uh, Representative Pollock and uh, Senator Stevens with respect to land claims. Although I'm getting a little click here. Let me turn this off. I'm going to just distracting noise. Ah, there we go. Great. So I guess uh, maybe the best way to start talking about land claims since uh, at some point these tapes are going up to the University Oral History Project and will be around years after, uh, if they're t properly taken care of, years after you and I have left the scene. So maybe uh, the way to, best way to start would be a brief biography on, uh, on sort of who you are and how you ended up uh, being involved with Representative Pollock uh, in, I don't know what, even know whether it was 69 or 70 that you finally came on staff. Well, the, uh, the Reader's Digest version of all that is that I graduated from uh, law school in uh, June of 1969 from the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, for reasons never yet clear to me, I decided that I wanted to work on Capitol Hill and uh, looked around for a job and uh, uh, um, uh, Congressman Pollock had one uh, for a legislative assistant and uh, I was impressed with his enthusiasm about his job and uh, about the uh, uh, pending issues, and uh, so <clears throat> I began uh, work as his legislative assistant, and then... Uh, you know, when was that? You got out in June of 69? Right, started in August of 69, and uh, uh, became uh, later his administrative assistant and legislative uh, director, and uh, he uh, ran unsuccessfully for governor in 1970, and uh, uh, he and I left, uh, left the House about the same time in, the, in uh, December of, uh, of uh, 1970, uh, whereupon I went to work for uh, Senator Stevens in January of uh, 1970 as his legislative assistant, and um, the Alaska Native Claims Act was uh, clearly the uh, most important issue on uh, on his agenda and, and uh, therefore on my agenda. Uh, I left uh, uh, his uh, office in December of 1971, uh, literally uh, days after uh, the Claims Act was uh, signed into law. Okay, well, uh, I assume then that, that when you worked to, uh, when you went to work for Representative Pollock that it was sort of the luck of the draw, you just sort of, I don't mean to be too literal about it, but I mean, you sort of, with your, like a lot of young law school graduates, you have your resume out all over the Longworth building, and you sort of hooked up with Pollock. Did you have, or did you have any past relationship with Alaska at the time? I mean, was it a happens chance that you got involved in Alaska, or could it have been Indiana or California or something, or someone else had, well, did, uh, it couldn't have been Indiana, but no. <laughs> Um, I think it was literally happenstance. I won't go through the sort of right. funny story that led to uh, my identifying the job, but I had no prior relationship with Alaska until 
that point, and he was kind enough to, to take a chance on me, and uh, um, I've had that love affair with Alaska ever since. Okay, well now, when you <clears throat> went to work for Pollock, I assumed that uh, land claims was a, well, I know that land claims was a big deal at that point. Uh, had you had any um, prior uh, exposure to, you know, Aboriginal title, the Tiatan case, what all this was about, or did you have to start from from scratch and, and build an institutional knowledge of the field of play? I started from scratch. I didn't even take Indian law in, in law school, and perhaps that was a benefit, actually, because I think uh, the Alaska context was so so different than uh, uh, the situation in, in the lower 48. Uh, maybe in retrospect, it was a benefit not to be uh, uh, jaded and constrained by you know uh, the, the prior history. Uh, fortunately for me, there were a couple of people in uh, Pollock's office who had had uh, pretty extensive experience with the Claims Act before I got there, and until uh, I got my feet on the ground, they were uh, very helpful. And then, in addition to that, I did. Uh, uh, on more than one occasion, journey over to the Library of Congress and, and read uh, the relevant case law. Okay, did uh, I guess the, if you came in in August of '69, the first uh, major House Interior Committee activities is uh, Aspinall took a road show up there that October, October of '69. Did you get to go along on that trip, or did you stay back here? No, I stayed here. I was still <coughs> getting my feet on the ground then. Uh, but uh, it's true that uh, Aspinall, uh, that, that was uh, his major refocusing of attention and uh, uh, the reorientation even of the committee itself uh, toward uh, the fact that this, this issue had to be dealt with. Okay, well, um, one of the things that happened, obviously, things actually stay fairly quiet over on your side of the hill until after the Senate passes its bill. and in July of 70, but, but certainly what was happening to, to Stevens and Gravel um, over on the, on the Senate side was that uh, the uh, Senate Interior Committee began its markup at, in December of 69, and this massive uh, white backlash broke out over the top of, of Stevens and Gravel's heads during that markup with uh, not only the anchor, you know, the usual suspects, but pretty much everyone in the non-native community, led by Keith Miller, <laughs> um, really, uh, you know, cut loose on those guys. Did did you notice that that era, 69-70, was was uh, Representative Pollock getting the same kind of pressures from the non-native community on this? What kind of stress was he under? I guess politically, uh, he was under a lot of stress. Uh, uh and he got a lot of pressure. Um, um, in some sense, perhaps, he was the most conservative member of the delegation at that point in time. And uh, uh, those who uh, opposed a, a settlement, I think, uh, to a fair extent, uh, tended to focus on him. And while it's true that the really visible activity was in the Senate process, uh, there was a very uh, active uh, process underway in the House, an educational effort uh, with the House Interior Committee, with the key leadership, and uh, very much to uh, Congressman Pollock's uh, credit. Uh, um, he uh, uh, did not succumb to the pressure from P. 
people that uh, might be conceived of as part of his natural constituency and uh, uh, fairly early on made it clear that uh, he uh, favored the enactment of a settlement act for a whole host of different reasons now. Um, you know, there were certainly variations in, in his treatment of particular uh, issues, but uh, uh, early on he crossed the Rubicon in terms of, uh, of uh, the basic issue of whether there should be settlement legislation or not. Right. Well, maybe this is out of, it's probably out of your brief, but I'll ask it anyway, and that is I haven't been able to figure out for the life of me, um, other than just the obvious, which is that the, you know the the extreme conservative wing of the Republican Party had gotten to him, but but Keith Miller basically did a 180 degree turnaround. If you look at the record, I mean he started out with Jackson and in uh, in early '69, sort of saying, "Yeah, I'm, I'm you know I I will sort of continue Governor Hickel's uh, positions with respect to this, which were really quite sane and generous." Mm -hmm. And then by October of 69, he's communicating to the Senate committee that he's rethinking the state's position. And then within weeks, by the time they go into markup, he <coughs> sends them a letter saying, you know, I repudiate everything I've said in the past. Uh, well, the state isn't going to give a nickel. We're not going to give an acre. This is your problem. Tough luck. And, and uh, did do you have any recollection to what Pollock thought of that? Or was the, did he ever meet with Miller? Did he ever, were you ever involved in any of that? Yeah, um, my recollection is that uh, he sent a couple of uh, assistant uh, attorneys general down to deal with the delegation and with uh, Congressman Pollock, and uh, they were uh, towing a, a very uh, 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 conservative line on the settlement. Um, it, it made life more difficult, there's no question about it, but. Um, you know, in retrospect, uh, uh, it was uh, pretty much a, a blip on the on the radar screen. And uh, uh, when Governor uh, Egan was elected uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the whole tenor of the issue uh, uh, changed, at least in terms of uh, the state administration. Right. Well, now in the in the uh, in the spring, actually in April of 1970. Uh, when you were saying about about Pollock having crossed the Rubicon, uh, he really did in that he sent out a statewide, I guess, to all voters, a a fairly detailed newsletter that was devoted exclusively to his position on on native land claims. That that particularly when you you know by in April of '70, Miller was still very much in the saddle. He wouldn't leave until December, and it was it was vastly different from the from the Miller, not a acre, not a dollar position, did, did I assume uh, that the Pollock didn't type that up. Did, did, did you supervise that? Did you have discussions with Senator, with Representative Pollock about what his position on these substantive matters should be? Or? Yeah, it was w actually one of the more enjoyable experiences of my professional life. Uh, uh, there were uh, probably three or four of us in Pollock's office involved in that uh, uh, drafting effort. Uh, um, a woman named Janet Archibald and uh, a fellow named uh, Bruce Schulteis and, and me at the staff level, but it um, was one of those items where uh, Con Congressman uh, Pollock as the principal uh, spent a, a tremendous amount of time uh, drafting um, 
and there was a, a lot of agonizing and soul-searching among all of us about uh, uh, what uh, positions to develop on particular issues, land, money, uh, land freeze. Uh, the royalty, which was obviously the heart of the state's problem. The royalty. Uh, and uh, uh, his, uh, Congressman Pollock's uh, personal imprint was, was very much all over that. Uh, by the time uh, it, it uh, went out on a statewide basis. Okay, well, <clears throat> actually that's an interesting question that's probably worth clearing up in the record. I mean, a lot of times, as you know, members of Congress, uh, particularly in the Senate but also in the House, uh, get accused of, of uh, uh, barely seeing the forest <laughs> and certainly not the trees, <laughs> and uh, which is why staffs have so much uh, power. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if you've worked with a lot of, of uh, members over the years. Uh, what was Pollock's sort of operational, hands-on understanding of these various issues? Well, in those days, uh, it's important to recollect that staffs were smaller, um, more personal to the member, uh, had less power, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, like uh, any uh, congressman, uh, Congressman Pollock's involvement in a particular issue uh, varied in accordance with the issue and his schedule, etc. But on the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, and uh, on that uh, newsletter in particular, because I remember the arduous process of going through draft by draft, uh, uh, he was uh, very much involved to the point of uh, writing particular sections himself, uh, uh, editing uh, at, uh, at great length uh, sections that he didn't write, and uh, uh, re reviewing each uh, draft uh, successively himself. So um, more than is the situation in most circumstances, that, that was uh, really his work product. Okay. Um, well, I'll get to the, to the members in a second, but uh, you mentioned that that prior to this, the months prior to this markup, that or this non-markup, as it turned out, that took place in 1970, that that there was a process of education that was going on inside the House Committee. Uh, obviously, at your level, uh, the guy that I assume you had to deal with the most was was Ziegler. Um, what was your impression of Ziegler in terms of his attitudes about all this? What did he seem to have a lot of influence with Aspinall? Uh, how? <coughs> Um, Sigler was one of the most competent staff people that I, I have worked with on Capitol Hill. Uh, a, a brilliant drafter, um, <clears throat> a real curmudgeon for uh, accuracy uh, and for style. Um, there aren't many of those left now. Um, <clears throat> but um, he was very much a reflection of uh, Chairman Aspinall and the predilections of the uh, uh, committee, uh, of the uh, leadership of the committee. Um, so we did spend a lot of uh, time with him and with uh, Charlie Leppard, who was the Republican counsel. Um, but a lot of my role in those days uh, was to help uh, uh, Congressman Pollock uh, staff out uh, presentations uh, to uh, the chairman and to the chairman of the subcommittee, who was Jim Haley of Florida, and 
another very influential uh, congressman named Edmonston from Oklahoma, and uh, others as well. Um, there was a, quite a uh, uh, an interaction at, at their level, just on a one-on-one -on -one and, uh, basis, and. Uh, uh, you know, Pollock was somewhat hampered in, in those respects by being a uh, relatively junior Republican on a, on a committee that was chaired by Democrats. But uh, I think Congressman Aspinall recognized uh, that this was an issue, a major challenge to his committee that he was really going to have to address. All right. Well, now, what uh, you may not have had a the best uh, seat in the House for this as a as a staff guy, but do you have any sense of of uh, what Aspinall thought of Pollock and, and what Haley thought of Pollock. I understand that Aspinall, in addition to being sort of a curmudgeon himself, was a very sort of partisan Democrat and, and uh, sort of uh, a dictator in terms of the committee. And that would put Pollock, it would seem to me, sort of behind the curve to begin with. Uh, Aspinall was uh, very partisan um, and uh, very uh, 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 strong in his leadership of the committee. He was one of the last of the truly strong uh, committee chairmen. Uh, uh, he uh, was opinionated. Uh, he had fixed views on a lot of things and uh, uh, gave short shrift to people that might disagree. Um, he was uh, very much constrained, uh, I think, by his experiences with Indian uh, settlements and with treaties in the lower 48. It was difficult to get him to see uh, Alaska in a broader context. Um, so, uh, you know, Pollock uh, suffered some of the infirmities of being junior, being Republican, uh, advocating some principles that were uh, not uh, um, uh, empathetic with uh, some of Congressman Aspinall's own thoughts on the subject, uh, having to deal with a situation where um, the, the state administration uh, saw, saw this as a federal responsibility that did not require Alaska involvement, and where Aspinall sh seemed to say that if a settlement were to occur, uh, the state would have to be involved in some form. Okay. Now, um the other thing, and maybe I should have asked it earlier, is that uh, it's my understanding that while this action was taking place in the, the Indian Affairs Subcommittee, which was, of course, as you mentioned, was chaired by Jim Haley of Florida, that that is a practical matter that Aspinall still ran everything. Is that is my assumption correct in that, or did Haley actually have any independent juice in his own subcommittee? Um, Aspinall had some independence, and he was sort of an interesting character in his own. Haley. I mean, Haley. Uh, uh, Haley had some independent discretion. He was uh, an independent, uh, interesting character in his own right. But there's no question that in those days, uh, with that chairman, uh, all of the subcommittee chairmen operated within general parameters that were set down by Chairman Aspinall. Okay. Um, the what happens is, I think I've mentioned before, uh, thanks to the present chairman, um, I've had an opportunity to review all the transcript of those, those closed markups. And, and uh, basically, uh, most of that summer, uh, I don't think you got in and they didn't let you in the door until sort of the end. They'd had a number of meetings prior to that that uh, 
that uh, first they sort of flailed around on what the problem was and and uh, what are we going to do about it and this took up days <laughs> and then all of a sudden Lou Ziegler um, appeared with a draft. I mean, everybody decided they didn't like S. 1830, which was the Senate bill. The Senate couldn't do anything right, and, and they were going to have to start from scratch. And so um, uh, Ziegler appears with this with this new draft bill that uh, that he prepared at Aspinall and Haley's request. And I guess the, the question becomes: Do you remember that draft? Were you? Were you did they include you in, in drafting it, or was this news to you, or? Those were the days of uh, closed markups, uh, closed uh, executive sessions, uh, and where no personal staff uh, for any member were allowed. Uh, at the close to the end, uh, I was given, you know, special dispensation given the importance of this issue to Congressman Pollock in Alaska. But uh, no, my recollection is that we were really weren't involved in in, in drafting. Um, I think uh, the extent of our involvement was conceptual discussions with uh, the chairman and with uh, uh, subcommittee chairman Haley about uh, general parameters and, and uh, likes and dislikes with respect to specific pro uh, provisions. Okay, but but you weren't all. Ziegler didn't bring you in to help him draft up and this at a technical level. No, he okay. he did not. And to my knowledge, uh, he didn't draft that way generally. He just liked to sit down uh, like a monk in a tower and, and <laughs> produce uh, very good work. Okay. Um, the other thing uh, that I think I passed by too briefly is uh, in terms of the, the handicaps that uh, Representative Pollock was operating under, of course, aside from being a junior member and a Republican, uh, the minute that he declared his candidacy for governor, regardless of, of the outcome of of uh, that particular project, which ended uh, uh, <laughs> badly as far as Representative Pollock was concerned. But nevertheless, he became a lame duck by really the beginning of, of the summer. Um, uh, or actually, I don't know when he declared. I'd have to look it up. But it must have been late spring or early summer of 70. Um, do you have a feeling as to, as to how that affected his relationship of, of influence with Aspinall? Uh, it's hard to quantify. Um, <clears throat> there was certainly uh, knowledge of Pollock's uh, candidacy, and uh, Pollock uh, was obviously in Alaska uh, more than he had been before. Um, you know, but one never knows what what's in the head of a, a congressman and uh, what the causal relations are, and. Uh, uh, there were some, uh, you know, good periods and some difficult periods, and we'll never know what what caused them. Uh, there were certainly some disagreements on on substance and uh, other matters that that could have contributed to um, those periods of time when uh, things weren't going as well as they did at others. Okay. Well, uh, but but you never heard Aspinall or anybody say, well. I don't have to pay any attention to you because you're not going to be around here anymore anyway. Your history, you're just somebody. No, that uh, that uh, I never did. I never heard, and 
even as brusque as uh, Chairman Aspinall could be, that's, I think that would have gone beyond uh, the rules of courtesy in the House that, that Congressman Aspinall would not have violated. Okay. Well, what, what does happen, of course, is, is they dink around most of the summer, and then Ziegler comes up with this, with this draft, and then we have the, the primary that, that uh, Representative Pollack loses amazingly, in my view, uh, to, <laughs> to, uh, to Governor Miller, which has got nothing to do with native land claims, but I, I never have understood. Do you have any, actually I'll, I'll even ask that, uh, how on earth did, did, po did Pollack, who according to Mike Gravel, they were scared to death of because he was the strongest politician in Alaska if he'd run for that Senate seat in 68, managed to lose to the likes of Keith Miller. Um, there's nothing to do with land claims. I thought you might know the answer. Well, I don't know that anybody <laughs> fully knows the answer, but I, I have some guesses. One of them is that uh, Alaskans were kind of funny in that election, and they did not like the idea of, um, of a member running against an incumbent uh, uh, of the same party. Um, uh, secondly, uh, Congressman Pollock's uh, campaign was never as well organized and as well financed as in retrospect it uh, should have been. And um, um, I think the attitude that a lot of Alaskans had was that uh, Congressman Pollock was a, a terrific uh, member of the House. Uh, they were thinking about him in terms of someday being a very good member of the Senate, but I'm not sure that they're uh, mindset was such that they were prepared to see him in uh, an executive capacity in Juneau. Well, it's, it's an interesting uh, what-if sort of game on a variety of levels uh, if he had won that, uh, that primary. But anyway, he didn't win that primary, and so by September of 70, um, when you read the transcript of the markup sessions, um, uh, Pollock is doing just about everything he possibly can, short of pulling a gun on him, <laughs> to try and get uh, this bill moved out of the subcommittee. And of course, he fails at that effort, and and that raises the question of what help did he have? And and one of the things we haven't talked about yet is is uh, what the Native lobby was like, uh, not later in '71, but in '70. Was what was the native like? Native lobby like Ramsey Clark and Ed Weinberg and Noddy and Hensley and people. Um, I think the native uh, lobbying effort in '69 and '70 uh, was good uh, relative uh, to um, other efforts on other issues by different uh, groups, uh, but not even a shadow of the effort that it became uh, in uh, 1971. Um, in 1971, there was a terrific coalition which was well coordinated of civil rights groups, church groups, oil companies, uh, Alaska Natives, American Indians, uh, uh, just plain folks that had learned about the issue and were concerned. And, uh, in 1970, it uh, tended to be uh, to, to devolve onto particular individuals like a Ramsey Clark, um, uh, Judge Gold, Justice Goldberg was involved for a while, uh, but one did not have the feeling of uh, 
the backing and empathy of uh, all these uh, uh, powerful groups that later became involved. Now, did you see much of Ramsey Clark? And I guess Bill Iverson was around in those days for him and Jay Greenfield. This is all before Ken Bass got involved. Right. Were they like a constant presence in, that, in this house process, or were they just not around that many? Um, we saw them, and I suspect they were around more than uh, than I sensed. Uh, I don't, uh, frankly, think uh, uh, there was any great love between a lot of them and uh, Congressman Pollock. Most of them were of a different party and a different political orientation, and uh, um, they would come to see Pollock on occasion, but uh, it, it wasn't. Uh, a consistent uh, uh, effort. I don't. I don't think uh, they may have spent more time uh, with some of the uh, Democratic members, and I just didn't uh, see see them. Okay. Um, the uh, the other uh, lobby that you've mentioned about with 1971, but uh, I don't see in the paper trail much sign of them in '70. Is uh, the oil industry? Um, is my Perception accurate or inaccurate? Were they on the scene in '70? I know later in '70 they finally got geared up with Bill Foster and the rest of it. But where were they through the summer of '70? Uh, the the real effectiveness of their effort began with Bill Foster uh, and uh, his his coordinating um, you know so many of the disparate elements of the total effort. Uh, uh, before that, uh, I think uh, they were in evidence, but th they wouldn't have needed to spend, you know, much time with uh, Congressman Pollock. Uh, uh, by that time, Congressman Pollock was committed, and uh, uh, you know, um, he had a general idea of uh, what they could live with and 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 what not. Uh, I think in the early parts and mid parts of 1970. Uh, the industry, the oil industry, was still in the process of uh, evolving its uh, its uh, final position. Right. Well, and actually, that's uh, another thing that happened uh, uh, up up through '69. Um, you know, simultaneously with the Claims Act was the effort to, to with Governor now then Secretary Hickel to to clear off the pipeline right of way and. and Issue the permit for the construction, etc., and and that was always going on sort of separate from native land claims. And then it was when legal services, and actually on April Fool's Day, as David Wolf has reminded me, <laughs> which he thinks is the most appropriate uh, moment for it. It was April Fool's Day of 1970 that whatever it was, Judge what's his name down the street here, issued the injunction against the department to prevent the the department from. Uh, Letting go of the right of way until native claims were settled. Did do you recall that being a jolt to the process? Did did or was that did that take a while to sink in as to what the implications of that were? It, it took a while, but uh, you know the combination of the land freeze and then the uh, decision in the Ninth Circuit relating to uh, the effect on on state selections uh, uh, and uh, uh, there. I don't recall precisely when it happened, but uh, uh, there was a, a coalescence of, uh, of uh, various elements, uh, the, the effort by the state to fulfill its uh, Statehood Act uh, entitlement, the effort by the oil companies to obtain a transportation carter from, from North Slope <coughs> crude, and then the uh, motive moral force and the legal force of uh, 
the settlement itself um, and the land freeze and some of the judicial decisions helped to bring all that uh, together in one forum. Okay. Well, then the, the last thing that happens on the House side in 1970, and maybe it didn't happen at all, is that at the last markup, when, when it becomes obvious that this is not moving before the everyone goes home in September, there was talk that, well, Congress might return uh, after the election, and Meads got an agreement uh, from Aspinall that, well, could in the interim, could a bunch of us that were interested in this sort of have a rump uh, working group and uh, and see if we could put something together, and Aspinall uh, at, at the markup session said, sure, I don't care, do whatever you want if that think that that would help us move this thing along. And I've never seen any any documents that would indicate to me that that effort ever was anything other than stillborn. Were you in, do you recall that at all? Was there any effort to, to put together a rump group like that? Um, I recall the colloquy you're talking about, but uh, I don't recall either that there was uh, <coughs> uh, much uh, follow-through, if any, and uh, uh, by that time, uh, the effort in Congressman Pollock's office was basically to uh, uh, dampen things down and close up shop and, and get things ready for his, pre for his successor. Okay. Well, then, that, you've mentioned that when that you and Representative Pollock uh, left the, uh, the... Actually, what building were you in? I never asked. Were you, was uh, he in Longworth? Or? He was in the Longworth building. Okay. Yep. But you guys left Longworth about the same time, and that you ended up with Senator Stevens. Uh, how did that come about? Did you go, being out of a job, did you then go over to Senator Stevens, or did he, knowing you were out of a job, come looking for you, or did, uh, what, how did you guys get hooked up? Uh, at that time, I, I had met Senator Stevens on various occasions. I don't think we knew each other well, um, but I called over to Ron Birch, who was then his uh, administrative assistant, and uh, indicated that I would very much like to remain involved in Alaska issues, and uh, uh, Ron uh, had me come over, and uh, and uh, he and Senator Stevens uh, hired me. At uh, that point, uh, Ron was about ready to leave for Alaska, and Senator Stevens was uh, filling out his staff uh, generally. Okay. Did uh, how did you find uh, when you arrived, uh, Senator Stevens? Uh, views about uh, both the substantive views about land claims and also procedurally about the, the political fix everyone was in, uh, different or the same as Senator Pollock's, or was there a different style of each guy? Or? Well, there were certainly differences, very different uh, people. Um, um, I think uh, the advent of, um, of Governor uh, Egan on the scene and his willingness uh, within parameters uh, to have the state participate in the settlement monetarily and uh, even in terms of giving up uh, some previously state-selected and tentatively approved lands helped things. But there was still a very strong uh, opposition movement in Alaska, and um, that group uh, was very close to Senator Stevens and uh, felt an allegiance to uh, the senator. Um, and it, it was very uh, uh, heart-wrenching for, for, for Stevens because he was morally uh, committed uh, uh, to, um, to passage of a fair Native Claims Act, and yet uh, uh, some of his natural constituents were very unhappy uh, uh, with him uh, for that uh, position, at least at that time. Um, I think 
things have changed markedly since then. Right. Well, um, how about uh, Senator Stevens' uh, relationship or lack of relationship with with Senator Gravel would eventually become uh, a matter of legend. But uh, was that a problem for you in '71? That at the, how did you how did you uh, interact? I guess it was Rothstein still there and Doug Jones? Yeah. I guess. Or? The key relationship uh, in that whole period of time was between Senator Stevens and Senator Jackson. And um, uh, you could characterize it in a lot of ways, but it was one of the best working relationships that I've been exposed to. Um, the relationship with Senator Gravel uh, in those days uh, had its uh, ups and downs. It uh, wasn't uh, as negative or as consistently negative as it might have become later. And um, in Doug Jones in particular, who had uh, the principal uh, staff assignment in, in uh, Senator Gravel's uh, office, uh, there was uh, there a guy of tremendous intellectual capacity, uh, uh, diligence, uh, and, and uh, uh, it uh, made the relationship a, a lot easier than it might otherwise have been. Okay, well. Um, if the major relationship at the member level was between Stevens and Jackson, um, Bill Van Ness obviously had been running this operation at a staff level for Senator Jackson. Um, had you known uh, Bill before you came over to work for Stevens, and uh, what was your uh, interaction with him? Uh, I'd known Bill, but not well. Um, because uh, you know most of our work centered on the House process. Uh, uh, I very quickly developed a, a lot of respect uh, for Bill and uh, uh, the relationship between him as chief counsel and uh, Senator Jackson as chairman was one of the uh, nicest and uh, I think most productive staff principal relations that I observed in all the uh, time that I, I worked on uh, Capitol Hill, uh, you know, uh, Van S was really Jackson's uh, uh, alter ego in, in the best sense of, of the word, and uh, um, there was just uh, an empathy between uh, Jackson and Stevens that uh, made the whole thing uh, a lot easier, uh, given the nature of the issues, than it would otherwise have been. Okay, well, I haven't talked to, to Bill in this kind of a context yet, but uh, did that uh, did that relationship that he have with Scoop did that let him then go in and and actually deal with with Stevens as a principal? I mean, or was he still pretty much at a staff level with you and 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 Jackson and Ted did their business separately? Senator Stevens' general modus operandi, as long as I've known him in the Senate, is basically to, to work with anybody, principal, staff, whatever, that can uh, get the job done. And I can recall uh, many occasions when Senator Stevens was perfectly happy to work with Bill and deal with Bill. Um, and uh, on other occasions, he felt that they were, there were issues that, only, that he would have to work out with uh, uh, Senator Jackson, Senator Bible, and others. Uh, uh, I interacted uh, with uh, Bill quite a bit, and there were a lot of situations where, um, you know, staff only staff people were present, uh, working with each other on uh, various issues. But one of my favorite recollections of that whole period was one time uh, being involved in a staff-level meeting, uh, which Bill Van Ness was uh, chairing uh, to work on some specific provisions. 
and uh, I looked uh, to the left, and there, sitting to behind me, and uh, uh, at my left elbow was Senator Stevens, uh, sort of uh, looking over my shoulder and uh, acting as a, as, as a staff. In those days, uh, there wasn't quite the formalism in the Senate that, that there is a, a now, and and uh, you know there was a, it wasn't as hierarchical and striated, and it, uh, it was just a lot easier to to get to get things uh, uh, done, and uh, um, uh, I wasn't really conscious of only dealing, uh, uh, you know, with a, a bill or, or, or whatever. It was just whatever uh, set of uh, people were necessary to solve a particular problem. Okay, well, the, the first thing that, that happens that's, that's of actually cosmic importance in, in 1971 in the Senate process is that um, Lo and behold, in April, uh, President Nixon comes out in, in support. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm as much in favor of social justice as Scoop Jackson is, but to me, social justice is 40 million acres. And, and that obviously was, was the result of a, of a very serious lobby that went on inside the White House in January, February, and into early March that's, that's a whole separate part of this whole um, story. but. Um, do you recall, did, uh, did uh, you play a role in that, or did Senator Stevens, I need to talk to, when I talked to Senator Stevens in November, there's, it's unclear whether he was involved directly with the John Ehrlichman, or were you involved with Kilberg or any of those people in, in that whole effort? Yeah, I, uh, Senator Stevens was uh, definitely involved with the White House, and I wasn't uh, always with him and not necessarily privy to all his phone calls, so I don't know who he interacted with. Uh, but. Uh, uh, I interacted with Brad Patterson and uh, with uh, Bobby uh, Kilberg, and so did Senator Stevens on occasion. Um, and I remember uh, one key uh, situation where he did get together with uh, with Ehrlichman, and uh, they, they they talked about it. Did was that downtown, or did Ehrlichman come up? My recollection was that he was on the hill. I, I wouldn't swear to that, but I think he was. Okay, and. I, again, these may be better questions to put to, to Ehrlichman, who I hope to get together with, and also Stevens, who I will, for sure. Uh, but was basically this Senator Stevens telling them that, that 40 million acres and what the natives wanted were okay with him? And, or, I mean, to what, what was his, what was he doing in terms of, of bringing this, substantively to bring this decision along? Well, uh, the first thing was to get the attention of, uh, of the White House, uh, and uh, Senator Stevens has strange and wondrous ways of making that happen. Um, and I think uh, by that time, uh, a consensus was growing uh, between um, him and uh, Gravel and uh, Begich uh, that uh, uh, 40 million acres was an acceptable uh, settlement. and. Um, uh, you know, they wanted to uh, constrain the location a bit, uh, uh, centered around villages and uh, uh, close to native population centers. But um, I think uh, they communicated that uh, to the White House, and uh, that helped the White House uh, considerably in its own deliberations. Okay. Did uh, one of the things that that has been amazing to me at a technical level is is um, really when most of the technical work had been done, it seems to me, in, in terms of looking at all the work that had to be done on the Senate side by 71, because really what 
what the committee did was was to take S1830, and then they just added some amendments onto it and and uh, moved that out as S35. So they really didn't have to completely reinvent the wheel. But right. but the major thing that they did do is uh, is they adopted two land proposals and. Uh, when I got into it, I then realized that I couldn't figure out before I got into it why they'd done it, and, and then and now it seems that that uh, proposal I'll arbitrarily call them A and B. The proposal A was an amendment that Senator Stevens had offered, which was, as you suggest, 40 million acres, but it was tied to selection areas right around the villages. And then, not to be outdone, Senator Jackson then had an amendment to his own bill, which which he called a 50 million acre proposal, but was really only a a, uh, I guess a 30 million acre proposal because it was 20 million around the villages plus 10 of free floating selections and then 20 million acres of subsistence um, rights, which was really sort of a technical sophistry. And uh, and they never voted. I mean, they just took both of them. They didn't mm -hmm. vote that. Do you have any light to shed on why they didn't vote them and why they had two proposals rather than if this relationship with Senator? Jackson was so hunky-dory with Senator Stevens, why didn't the two of them just figure out what it was going to be and put it in the bill? I think more than any other legislation I've been associated with, there was a recognition that this bill was going to be written in conference, and therefore it wasn't as necessary to work out every nuance uh, in the um, Senate process, and they recognized that they would be conferencing with a House bill that was uh, considerably different in structure, considerably more conservative. Um, also, um, S Senator Jackson um, was very uh, concerned about the concept of subsistence use and subsistence rights, and um, he, w he was not sure that uh, the combination of uh, uh, native fee ownership plus uh, uh, state, sensitive state and, and federal management was really going to solve the problem. And uh, I won't say that was a philosophical difference between him and Senator Stevens, but it led them uh, to in, inject a, a different, not totally antithetical solutions into the mix, knowing full well that uh, in conference with uh, Congressman Aspinall, they were going to have to work those matters out anyway. Okay, well, actually, in asking the last question, I realized that I made a dangerous assumption, which was that they didn't try <laughs> to work something out to have just one proposal. Uh, is that assumption accurate, that they didn't? I mean, was this the, was, were these two proposals the product of failure or just the product of going their separate ways to begin with? I don't really remember uh, all the details about that, but I don't recall any sessions where they uh, butted heads and said, you take mine and, or, you know, whatever. Um, they developed uh, on a parallel track uh, and uh, at different times uh, they didn't start from the exact same starting point. And uh, I don't recall a real effort to, to try to resolve it for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Okay. So you were never sent into a meeting, we'll go see Van Ness and see if you guys can come up with a a single proposal, you don't recall anything like that? No, because I don't think the two proposals were really considered by either of the principals as being uh, totally antithetical to each other. They were just uh, different ways of recognizing some of the same uh, issues and problems. Okay. Well, one of the other things, because we're now at the conference, uh, but actually before we get there, a couple of preliminary matters. And one is that I would assume that, that one of the other areas of policy difference between 
between Jackson and Stevens was on the issue of statewide corporations versus regional corporations. And uh, do you recall today, were you ever any discussions either with Bill or with the principals themselves over that issue? Yeah, there were differences on that. And um, uh, they were significant, but they weren't heated. That wasn't the nature of their relationship. Uh, uh, we Alaskans felt that, uh, uh, you know, that this was an Aboriginal Claims Act, uh, and therefore it sh the emphasis should be on uh, land and, and, and uh, the profit-making nature of the corporations, uh, that, that this was not a services uh, situation, uh, that, that the services were separate from Aboriginal claims and ought to be dealt with through the normal federal programmatic processes and appropriations, that uh, the Claims Act was not intended as a substitute for, for other forms of federal largesse. And then secondly, um, there was a very great concern uh, that um, the statewide corporations would have independent political power um, uh, that was sort of tantamount to governmental power. Um, uh, um, you mean in a, in a native sovereignty sense in the present? Not in a sovereignty sense, but more in the sense of just having the uh, uh, resources and, and capacity to rival both the state and federal government in Alaska. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, well, all that well defined maybe. Uh, and there was also a feeling that, um, you know, that these were really different regions of the state with very different uh, cultures and it wasn't uh, right to, to amalgamate everybody together and force them to, uh, you know, assume one corporate cultural identity. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, that led Senator Stevens to conclude that regional and village profit-making corporations uh, with uh, basically a homogeneous uh, culture uh, reflecting prior uh, uh, native boundaries, group boundaries was the way to go and uh, Senator Jackson was uh, um, a little less concerned about that and, and uh, s emphasized the services feature of, of the settlement. Mm. Okay, well the other, the only other thing in terms of laying the groundwork for the conference that I think we haven't talked about is you mentioned that the native lobby in 71 was vastly different from what you'd seen in 70 and, and uh, one of the reasons for that is is obviously after Congress had adjourned in 70, Don Wright was elected president of AFN. And, um, uh, and, and largely, as I can reconstitute re, uh, the record, because there were a lot of people in the Native community in Alaska that, that uh, didn't know really what was going on in Washington, but they thought they were getting sold out, that the, the Jacksonville, seven million acres or whatever it was, and and the Ramsey-Clark approach of, you know, don't you guys come down here, just uh, let me, you know, I'll go in and meet with Scoop and, and you can't go around the chairman and all that kind of stuff. That They didn't understand the technical part, but they thought in their gut that they weren't being well served, and that's how Don got elected in my view. So I guess the first question is, is was that a surprise to, uh, to you when Don Wright was elected? Do you think everything was fine in the Native community? And, and uh, how would you view his... Uh, his and the Native Lobby in, uh, in 71's performance? Well, in my opinion, the Claims Act is the combination of a rare set of circumstances which uh, 
uh, came together at a point in time and may not duplicate the, itself again uh, in America. Um, at one level, uh, there was a recognition pretty uh, broad afoot uh, in the Congress that the prior American Indian policy hadn't worked, and uh, whether that be reservations or conquest or allotments or whatever, and that we needed a wholly new approach. So the, the Congress was receptive. Uh, in, in prior years, it wouldn't have been. Secondly, uh, Don Wright, in my opinion, was the right leader for the right moment in time. Uh, There we go. All right, we're back on. But anyway, at that point in time, what was needed was uh, an articulate, abrasive, proactive uh, kind of person like Don to kind of be the spiritual leader of the effort. Um, other Native leaders had helped laid the foundation uh, very articulately, but a little more quietly. Another aspect is uh, uh, that uh, the state administration had changed and was more favorable to state participation. Another is that the Nixon administration was uh, on board with a 40 million acre settlement and a lot of uh, Nixon detractors have uh, loved to speculate about how it happened and why, but the fact is it did happen and my own judgment is that there was a sincere uh, commitment there uh, uh, to uh, Amer American Indian issues, uh, particularly the Claims Act and uh, Ehrlichman uh, um, was a, uh, an important factor in that, uh, all of this uh, subsequent history notwithstanding. And um, uh, there was a very uh, a rare coincidence of uh, powerful forces which don't often ally themselves. Uh, the oil industry and people have said, well, they only did it because of Prudhoe Bay, maybe so, maybe not, but they were uh, there and I think uh, they were an effective presence, uh, church groups, civil rights groups, uh, Indian and Native groups, and they uh, allowed themselves to fall under the coordination of, uh, uh, of uh, various captains and lieutenants, and they don't usually give up uh, uh, their autonomy uh, in, in that regard. So uh, uh, Don uh, Wright uh, w uh, fit well into that uh, uh, context and uh, the context was very uh, effective, I think, in supporting his leadership. And the AFN um, uh, provided, uh, I think, a lot of uh, moral suasion to the uh, process generally. Mm. Well, now Don obviously be would subsequently become a, a I guess, to, the the understatement would be a controversial <laughs> member of the Native community. How did he? Do you recall how he handled himself uh, that year in terms of meetings with the principals and things? I mean, was he, did he project a, I mean, was he viewed as sort of the way people view him today as sort of Don Wright a little too far off the scope or was, did he look like a solid citizen or how did, I mean, was he taking, was he taking, was he a man of substance in those days? How was he perceived, do you think, by the process? Uh, I think the process uh, perceived him well, uh, perhaps a little nervously, but that nervousness uh, probably inured to Don's benefit. Um, um, he could be uh, very confrontational. Uh, he could be very uh, friendly. He seemed to know uh, which uh, demeanor to assume and what circumstances. Uh, uh, I remember some difficult discussions uh, in our own office, uh, you know, Senator Stevens uh, 
uh, presiding, uh, but there was a basic uh, friendliness and trust in those days, I think, between centers, uh, between Don Wright and the uh, congressional delegation. And uh, uh, Wright, uh, you know, uh, used his lieutenants uh, well and uh, uh, allocated them where I think they could uh, do the most good. Uh, and say his lieutenants, you mean like? Parmenter and like Foster and people like that, or are you talking about other natives? Well, he had a combination of uh, native and non-native uh, uh, lieutenants. Uh, maybe lieutenant isn't the right word in all cases, but he had uh, help from non-natives and Ken Bass, who you know was the, the legal uh, counsel. Uh, Parmenter did a lot of uh, the public relations liaison work. Uh, but there was an articulate uh, cadre of native leaders who were well known and well respected in different parts of Capitol Hill. For example, uh, John Borbridge was very effective um, uh, with certain members on the House side. Uh, Willie Hensley, uh, similarly so, uh, and with some members of the Senate. And uh, uh, I don't know how all of that was orchestrated internally within the AFN, but. Uh, in terms of uh, the net result and being on the receiving end of some of those efforts, I, I would say they were among the most effective I've seen. Okay. Well, when we do get to the conference, uh, which I understand took place over in the ground floor of the Capitol building, uh, uh, how did it work in those days? Were, were you staff guys actually in the door, or were you out the door with the, with Rickwire and the lobbyists, or where? where <laughs> how did the staff? I knew how. It, how it happened over in the House in terms of staff participation. What, what was the situation with the conference? Um, that was in, in one of those uh, periods when no personal staff uh, were in the conference. Um, uh, uh, my role was to be there for Senator Stevens. Uh, we discussed a lot of issues. Uh, he would uh, give me uh, language to review and give him his opinions. Uh, I recall two or three very intensive sessions in his office where we would, uh, you know, kind of jointly review uh, different pages and different provisions. But as to the conference itself, um, uh, the advocacy occurred uh, among the principals, and uh, the uh, uh, almost all the staff work, as I can recall, was done by Lou Sigler and Bill Van Ness, uh, who in turn called upon committee staff for, for different uh, discrete uh, tasks, but they uh, they uh, did most of it, and they did it, uh, the major drafting in a, an incredibly short period of time, uh, which not, not attributable to any fault of theirs may reflect some of the subsequent <laughs> problems with the Claims Act. Okay, well, so then basically what you're telling me is that for the conference itself, other than other than the members, Bill and, and Ziegler were the only guys that got in the door. Was that there may or may not have been some staff person who was in there for a particular purpose, and I'm sure that the Republican counsel were, were in there too, but... But like you and Doug Jones didn't get in there? No. Or Guy Martin or stuff like that. You guys were all out in the hall. Right. Uh, or I didn't like to do that as much, so, you know, we were in the tactical places where well, we metaphorically speaking, yeah. right. metaphorically speaking. Right, that's true. Okay, well, the, the one thing it seems to me in terms of, of a lot of the, quote, problems, close quote, that we've had with the details of the Claims Act, uh, when you look back on it, comes from what I think is the most important decision that the conference made, which 
which was the first thing they did was was make Aspinall the the head of the whole conference. But I've ta I just talked to Lloyd Meads, and he told me that the reason for that is that it, it went back and forth like a ping pong ball, mm -hmm. and so just that was an easy one because he just Aspinall's number had come up on this bill as opposed to the last bill they'd conferenced. Um, and but the other one was that then they voted to use the House bill as the markup vehicle. And I've been around enough to know that if you let me do that to you, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, 80% of the way home. Uh, if you could, use, if you'll agree to use my bill for us to use as the basis of negotiating our common disagreements. And so I guess the question was, do you recall that issue? Do you recall talking to Senator Stevens uh, about this whole question of who's, which bill was going to be the markup vehicle, and was, was that as big an issue as, as I've just made it? There was a lot of attention given to the care and feeding of the uh, House Interior Committee leadership because this was pretty tenuous, and we were getting late in the session, and there were significant differences between the House and the Senate, not only in terms of their legislation, but their general ideological approach to this bill. And the whole thing could have fallen apart at any moment, and uh, there were questions about whether the coalition could be kept together, about whether the legal matrix uh, 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 would re remain the same. And uh, I think uh, one of the concessions that the Senate was willing to make uh, to uh, assuage some of uh, Chairman Aspinall's concerns was to use the House bill as, uh, as the markup vehicle. Okay. Um, <coughs> the, the other thing is that the after they do that, there's really only two things that occur when you cut through all the baloney, as far as I'm concerned, on the conference. And the, the first was that everyone had agreed going in after they, almost almost with the same ease that they used the House bill, that we were going to have a 40 million acre settlement. That, that went pretty easy. Mm -hmm. And they then got hung up, at least as I look at the paper trail, on the issue of which 40 million acres. And that eventually got got cut loose in the way that obviously we know it did because that's what's in the, <laughs> the Claims Act today. But the folks that seem to have had a, a major stake in that other than the natives was, of course, Egan in the state of Alaska. And I have not been able to see a lot of their presence around the conference, but I've also heard that Egan was in town and perhaps sort of hiding out with Havelock, and they were there but not there. Uh, do you have any light to shed on that? Well, two things. One is that uh, Egan was present uh, through the whole process of uh, uh, Claims Act enactment in 71 uh, quite a bit. And uh, one of my favorite recollections of him was uh, in the days when we were still convincing people on, uh, about the wisdom of the settlement, uh, he would literally uh, come in and uh, get an assignment list in the morning and go off uh, uh, by himself visiting members all day long and come back with a list of, you know, with little check marks and marginal comments at the end of the day. And uh, uh, he and uh, John Havelock uh, were in town. I don't recall if it was during the entire conference period, uh, uh, but they uh, were there at least for part of it. And then they left uh, Esther Wanneke, who was then an assistant attorney general, uh, behind to uh, work with uh, the delegation and with Senator Stevens uh, to uh, try as much as possible to to reflect state views in the final drafting. Okay, so when when as I understand the story, it was actually Wickwire and Parmet are actually thought up the 
the formula that became the formula and that they gave it to Meads and so it was sort of a Meads proposal that went into the conference that everyone then accepted. But I guess my point then is that the, the state was involved and they would, that, they would not have been not involved in the decision of the conference to accept what became the, uh, the formula. Well, two things. One is that the delegation was certainly aware of what Governor Egan's bottom lines were. Uh, secondly, uh, they, there was a presence, whether it was the governor at one time or, or Esther at another. I don't recall exactly how they expressed themselves all the time uh, during that period uh, and whether they specifically acquiesced in the final version of 40 million, but uh, their, their presence uh, was certainly felt in that, in that process. Okay, well, the, the next thing, and actually the last thing that happened is, is uh, that issue gets resolved. And so, as I understand it, uh, Jackson and company basically tell Stevens, Gravel, and Begich that with respect to all these subsidiary issues about how this thing is really going to be implemented, et cetera, it's your state, you have to live with it. You guys go off and figure this out and come back to us. And, and they went off to, uh, I guess, Stevens' office. It might have been Gravel's office. And I guess Egan did show up for this. And there was this purported secret meeting <laughs> where these arrangements were reduced to writing that, that Gravel then turned right around and unsecreted by going to AFN and, and giving it to him. And I, I guess the first, uh, uh, the first question is that my description of that may be a bit pejorative, uh, but it does appear to have been a secret uh, meeting in the sense that no one asked the natives who's, who were going to have to live with these arrangements to participate in such a meeting. And, and why was that? Well, um, I mean, we wouldn't do that today. I mean, you yeah. can never get away with it today. Well, first, I think there were more issues that, you know, where the general parameters were set by the conference than just land. But, uh, uh, you know, because we were dealing with things like state participation in the settlement and... Uh, uh, the, right, I was over something. Yeah, the amount of money in, in total, which was going to involve a significant federal appropriation. But it is true that a lot of the issues, and I think maybe... The corporate structure was part of that. Um, uh, you know, were not left to the Alaskans, uh, but uh, at least uh, their advice was uh, sought. And um, I think uh, there was uh, there were meetings at the staff level with just the delegation, and there were uh, uh, meetings among the principals. Um, yeah, and uh, I think. Um, uh, you know, the natives were sometimes involved in different meetings. I don't think there was any one that was just totally critical to the, the ultimate outcome. Um, and, and in situations where they weren't, there was a lot of consultation, a lot of phone calling, a lot of meeting, you know, before and after work and all that kind of thing. So it's, it, it, it's not, in terms of format, the, 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 the kind of thing you'd like, perhaps, but I think in terms of the uh, net result, uh, um, the, uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of native input into that process. Yeah, well, you know, of course, that isn't the way they viewed that. Right. <laughs> well, there yeah. gets to be a point in, in any legislative process, and I guess this is worth saying, even one that affects uh, one group, where the guys with federal election certificates get to make the decision. and. 
uh, since I'm now in a role where, um, you know, there's a point where we have to recede and the guys with federal election certificates make the decision, I, I know that sense of resentment and, and uh, would be quadruply so for, for, for people involved in an aboriginal claim situation giving up their rights to land. But nevertheless, that's the nature of the process. Uh, and uh, uh, there was a point uh, where um, uh, the federal uh, people uh, made those determinations, and I think the net result was, uh, as is often the case, nobody was uh, totally happy uh, with the result. Right. Well, assuming it was, it was the way that you just described it, then uh, uh, were people, do you recall that the, either Senator Stevens or you or, or the other participants in all of that were less than pleased when, when Senator Gravel immediately walked out and said, yes, I'll keep this in confidence, and turned right around and gave it to AFN? Well, I don't, I don't remember, uh, uh, you know, what representation he made within the thing, but uh, I remember that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, at least by the lights of uh, our office and Senator Stevens, that some of the understandings we thought we had were uh, uh, not adhered to uh, throughout. Um, uh, you know, that makes for interesting speculation, but in truth that was just a blip uh, at what was pretty close to the end of the process where, where at that point there was a lot of momentum. Okay. Well, then the only, the only two substantive questions I have before I'll give you the last uh, one that I always ask everybody is, is there, are two, there are two things that I think subsequent to this conference have caused lots of of uh, animated activity, if nothing else. And the first is obviously the uh, conference and, and Senator Stevens and Gravel accepted, uh, you know, whatever it was called, the Bible Amendment, which, which led to, you know, if not led to, which was Section 17D2. And did, uh, do you recall that at all being a subject of controversy? And did people at the time realize what the real implications of that were in terms of how developed, chewed up the rest of our lives? Well, we haven't talked about it a lot, but there was a tremendous uh, uh, conflict uh, that, that underlay all this uh, uh, involving, uh, uh, you know, how conservation concerns were going to be included in, that, in an Aboriginal uh, land claim settlement. And that didn't begin late in the process. It began early, and it, uh, in the House, uh, Congressman Udall and Congressman Saylor uh, were both uh, very concerned about uh, such a huge land allocation and uh, what that would mean for various uh, conservation interests. So that led to the development of uh, Section 17 in total, uh, which in one way has very little to do with an Aboriginal land claim settlement, and another perhaps uh, was part of, uh, was very much related to a total uh, land uh, allocation in Alaska and provided some of the lubricant for the settlement. And both 17D1, which uh, related to uh, uh, secretarial authority to uh, withdraw lands in the public interest, and D2 uh, relating to uh, secretarial and congressional uh, interaction um, in the, quote, national interest, were given uh, quite a bit of concern, and they were of tremendous concern to the Alaska miners and uh, uh, other uh, land user groups uh, in Alaska. 
Um, there was a feeling that to get the requisite number of votes in the House and the Senate that uh, something was going to have to be done with respect to those issues. I think in terms of the expectation that Alaskans had with respect to those provisions, nobody ever thought that Section 17D1 would be used the way it was, uh, leading to such massive withdrawals uh, uh, in various administrations, or that se Section 17D2 uh, uh, would lead uh, to the massive uh, legislation in, in 1980. Uh, uh, but clearly, uh, the, the conference committee made obeisance, uh, more than obeisance, to those uh, matters. And I suppose, in retrospect, uh, one should have uh, figured out that uh, uh, they might be implemented in that way. Okay, but then I, I don't want to, again, to misconstrue this, but you're saying that, that people were aware of the general issue, and because of the politics of it, there had to be something like that in the bill. but but did not really, because there were many other items of equal technical, um, uh, of an equally technical nature that were on the table that were dealt directly with land claims that people really didn't think through the potential implications of what was happening? No. I, I don't want to misstate it here. Yeah, I think uh, perhaps uh, nobody envisioned the ultimate outcome in terms of the parks, refuges, wilderness areas. Uh, national monuments created by President Carter, uh, you know, refuges created by administrative action under the Carter administration, perhaps not to that full extent. But, um, you know, as with any legislation, there are relatively few real knowledgeable uh, people or, knowledge or experts. And as to particular provisions, there, there are even fewer. I think um, um, the Congressional de Alaska Congressional Delegation was aware of its potential, and you know, initially they tried to, to delete those provisions. That was the source of some real acrimony uh, in, between Congressman Pollock and maybe Congressman Saylor in the in the House. Um, but failing that, uh, they tried to, as they could to uh, circumscribe them. Um, but by that time, there was a lot of national environmental interest in the situation represented by Udall and. Sailor, and, and I think uh, the ultimate outcome uh, uh, represented the ebb and flow of uh, a lot of discussions. But I think it would be, um, you know, unfair to say, uh, particularly if you look at the written word, that it was not possible to envision some of the consequences, or that people did not see those consequences. Okay, fair enough. And then the last one of these is that it is amazing to me, particularly uh, both with the way things turn out in terms of my own personal activities, that. It, you read, you start with Alaska Natives in the land, and you look at the testimony of the whole thing, and, and one of the driving uh, motivations for the whole exercise was protecting the village subsistence economy, and, uh, you know, which was a lot of the fight about how much land, you know, mm -hmm. what, what was the, is the, is the land, the land ownership thing was going to be used to protect subsistence. I mean, that was what a lot of the people thought that, that were involved in this, and we get into the conference, and the Senate provision on subsistence protection drops out, and and analytically, I can I can say to the tape that it's that it's the that's the sort of the grandparent of the whole idea of what later became all Title Eight of Anoka is is a more sophisticated and perhaps even more screwed up version of of Section Twenty One of of the old Senate bill. And and do you have any light to shed on on why that 
was not accepted by the conference? Uh, who did the state come in and and adamantly oppose it? Did, was there any discussion about that? Uh, well, my debility is I wasn't in the actual yeah. conference, but. Um, I think uh, there was some sentiment that uh, 40 million acres of field and land would give uh, natives the option of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, using the land for development purposes or to protect subsistence or both. Uh, there were, you know, there wasn't a recognition that subsistence, there was a recognition, but it wasn't translated that subsistence use uh, would trans transcend uh, the narrow bound uh, the boundaries of 40 million acres and extend beyond that and um, subsistence was related to a whole concept of the land uh, and the importance of the land uh, that were, was very uh, well advocated by native uh, leaders but I don't recall uh, subsistence in the context of ANCSA uh, having the same significance uh, that uh, it did uh, in the context of, uh, of ANILCA 10 years later. Now, maybe we needed that 10-year experience uh, to uh, understand how subsistence worked and what it was, but there were never the same detailed discussions about the subsistence cultural, economic, both, uh, you know, uh, how do we regulate it, uh, quantify it, and all that in the context of ANCSA as, as there was later on. Okay. Um, well, I have... I'm sure that I will uh, think up other things to ask you at uh, some point, so I'd like to reserve my <laughs> right to do so if I think up other stuff, but uh, I pretty well exhausted my questions for today. The, the one thing that I always do, since this is going to be, uh, you know, hopefully for folks to listen to far beyond just my limited project is, and it's the subject probably for a whole other tape some other day, but I've asked sort of all of the people that were involved uh, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, which makes it easy. <laughs> uh, how do you think this handiwork to date has turned out? And again, with, with the ease of hindsight, if, if at a staff technical level you had it to do over again uh, in terms of, you know, village corporations, regional corporations, all this, these endless amendments that we've had since 71, uh, what, were there any basic arrangements in the act you would have done differently? Well, I think it, it turned out remarkably well given all the constraints and the fact that this was produced, uh, you know, in a, in a very uh, um, uh, <clears throat> emotional environment in Alaska and uh, back here. Um, but I, th I think there's some interesting things. Uh, I've given a lot of thought to your question over the years, too. Uh, it's been my lot in life. Uh, to have to try to implement some, some of the provisions that we helped draft uh, uh, years before. Uh, for one thing, uh, despite the best uh, motives of uh, people, and I, I think uh, all the cynics to the contrary, that the motive force for this legislation was, uh, was, was a good one and a, and a moral one. Uh, it wasn't simply uh, land freezes and Prudhoe Bay oil and, and what the revisionist history historians would like to project, but there is a Western culture bias in this bill because it was drafted by Westerners, and uh, uh, so it includes concepts that we're comfortable with, like corporations and uh, um, fee-owned land. Uh, it, it ignores uh, most of the major tenets of uh, 
Alaska Native culture, i.e. the common ownership of property, the, the lack of experience with, uh, 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 with uh, uh, corporations. And so the goal was to give uh, Native people the option uh, to, to do what they wanted with their fee-owned land, very different than the trust relationship in the lower 48 with the Secretary of the Interior. But there is an inevitable Western bias in, in the act, which has led uh, corporate uh, decision makers, I think, in certain uh, directions uh, uh, that were not necessarily fully intended by the uh, authors of the bill. In terms of uh, the bill itself, I think it, it, uh, where, where the problems have occurred, they have occurred because the bill is, is so complicated. Uh, it took people literally years to figure it out. Uh, including uh, the native people and uh, the government. Uh, the government was had to totally reorient itself, the federal government. Uh, uh, initially, the bureaucracy was recalcitrant, but it took them a long time just to, to figure, it, figure out the provisions and what they meant. The drafting was probably as good as could have been done in a short period of time, but it is not very good. Uh, uh, you know, drafting, uh, you know, given the complexity of the uh, issues. It uh, led to a lot of uh, litigation, the lack of clarity, the uh, problems that weren't thought out well enough uh, in the legislation. So that diverted uh, people's energies and resources from, um, you know, from the Aboriginal settlement uh, into less constructive uh, channels, um, uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, there are various uh, problems like that. For example, I would like to have seen some of the provisions uh, less, uh, requiring less future execution. Perhaps we could have fixed the actual location of uh, the major land entitlements a, a little better. Um, we could have avoided some, uh, you know, written more into the act and avoided uh, some of the conflicts that appeared later in the drawing of regional boundaries and selections uh, in, in uh, um, other aspects. But all that is, uh, is uh, hindsight, and uh, I'm not at all positive that if the act had not, if it had not passed then, that it would have uh, passed uh, uh, later. The, the con it was difficult to maintain that consensus of people at that point in time. And uh, now that we're viewing it in 1992 and, and not 1980, uh, a lot of the problems that were caused by poor drafting, maybe poor conceptualization, uh, initially poor implementation, they're biased now. And we can uh, uh, look at the act, I think, with a little more detachment. And the sum and substance is that uh, pretty soon uh, uh, native corporations will have 44 million acres of land and all that that uh, represents and uh, maybe that wasn't a, a bad day's work uh, for that Congress in 1971. Okay, great. The, the only, the last thing, however, that that raises uh, <clears throat> that's always been amazing to me uh, is that as near as I can do it, to be generous about it, there were really only about 20 guys in the Native community that were involved in this. I mean, you know, the, there's, the, there's the five or six obvious ones, you know, Hensley, Wright, Orbridge, and then there are other people sort of behind them. But there really are not that very many people. But, but when you do the math on 200 village corporations and 12 regional corporations, and if you give them a board of directors of 
of at least 10 people, and, and perhaps a lot of them have way more than 10, closer to 20. I mean, you really, logic would suggest that, that to, to staff the implementation of this very interesting and, and unprecedented social experiment in one of the most uh, underdeveloped <laughs> parts of the United States, particularly in 1971, that you, you, the, the act was presupposing that there were literally thousands, if you do that math, of folks sitting around in, in uh, Noatak and Kasigluk and other distant venues who could immediately sort of pick up the ball that was thrown to them. And that, a lot of the problems, it seems to me, has been a result of the, the lack of reality underlying that assumption. And that's my own fix on it. But I was wondering, was that ever discussed? I mean, did you recall ever being in any staff meetings, either with, with principals or staff people, about, about that kind of math and whether this really had a chance at the village level? Not in those terms, and I think you've uh, elucidated one of the principal problems with the Act and its conceptual conceptualization and early implementation. That is, um, not on the government side and not in the Native community were there the uh, human resources uh, to implement it. Um, uh, it required an amazing adaptability and orient reorientation of the Native community to concepts that were pretty foreign to their culture. Uh, it's amazing that it's turned out that well. Um, there were kind of abstract discussions that I remember about, uh, you know, uh, this was called the you know, Alaska Native uh, Lawyers Settlement Act and, and this and that. And uh, a recognition that its complexity, et cetera, was going to require uh, a lot of uh, help, um, but I don't know that the uh, conception that, that at least initially there would be relatively few uh, knowledgeable people to implement it really uh, went back to uh, modify or, or, or re-inform uh, any of the major provisions of the legislation. Okay, well good enough. Well, as I said about uh, five minutes ago, <laughs> I'm out of questions and uh, very much appreciate it, needless to say, and uh, it's been a lot of fun, I think, uh, putting you uh, in the hot seat. And uh, I guess that will be it for this tape.